0: Dokey-dokey. The training world is full of technical editing courses that don't teach the high-end creativity the viewers expect. Inside the edit was created specifically to teach you every single creative skill you'll ever need to mesmerise your audience. Hello dear friends, welcome back to another episode of your favourite editing podcast, Once Upon a Timeline, the official podcast of Inside the Edit. Yep, we're late again, I hope you can forgive us, but I think we've got a really great show for you this week, so sit back, chill out, and dive back into the wondrous world of creative editing. So... What are we going to talk about on this week's show? Well, yes, the title does sound a bit nuts. (laughs) Creative Capital, Applying Economic Theory to Our Timeline. Now, I know what you might be thinking. What the hell does economics have to do with creative editing? Well, it's a valid question. So let me give you my reasoning. Now, if you're a regular listener to Once Upon a Timeline or a member of Inside the Edit, you already know that I'm not really a fan of how creative editing has been portrayed or taught, written about or discussed. To me, it's a beautifully complex and multi-layered art form that has kind of been hijacked by tech obsession. constantly thinking about new ways to approach it to discuss it and above all to teach it and so coming from radically new and completely unique perspectives and not the usual this button does this or that NLE software now does that type training which teaches you zero about what you actually need to be an editor is what this podcast is all about. So, before we dive into this week's creative discussion, let me tell you about a few very cool things we've got going on at Inside the Edit. You can now book our brand new master's degree taster over at insidetheedit.com. This is a two-week glimpse into the only professional-level creative editing degree in the world. It starts on April the 5th for a fortnight and the best thing is, it's absolutely free. If you'd like to come and study editing with me and the amazing team at Ravensbourne University in London for a whole year, get one-to-one feedback on all of your work and progress and earn an MFA, then this is the degree for you. This is elite level editing, but hurry, spaces are very, very limited. We are nearly at capacity. And we are just two weeks away from February's live webinar day. This month's Inside the Edit Bootcamp will be on Saturday, the 20th of February. And we are going to take an enormously deep dive into essential picture cutting theory. This is a fascinating subject. There is so much to discover in how we cut images together. So many techniques, so many concepts and so many abilities in this particular area of our art form. These are part of the fundamental skills of any doc editor, drama editor, reality editor, videographer, YouTuber, or news cutter. Understanding this visual grammar and having the confidence to show it off in precisely crafted places makes us stand out in a crowded marketplace of editors booking is now live over at insidetheedit.com the whole half day that's four hours of live creative edit training costs just 99 pounds okay it's time for this week's creative discussion Over the years, one of my favourite pastimes has been reading completely unrelated subjects, analysing their structure and then identifying theories within them that would apply to editing. Now, I know this sounds a bit out there, but there's a reason behind it. Around 2008, I actually stopped editing for a whole year and a half. In all honesty, I was burnt out doing complicated and pretty challenging science, politics and historical documentaries back to back without any break in between, which probably wasn't that sensible. When you're dreaming about timelines, you know, you should probably have a break. The agency I belonged to also had a training arm and they suggested I teach some editing. Like every training center around the world, it was all software training and no craft whatsoever. You teach these three or five day courses based on each of the main NLE softwares. And it's all geared towards taking the student through the entire software, showing them all the buttons and pull down menus, studying the interface and then getting them to take the accreditation exam on the last day. If they pass, they become certified in that particular piece of software and then they can go and put that on their CV. It was kind of a welcome break for me. I started work at 10am and ended at 5.30pm, which I've never ever done before. The hours in broadcast television are a lot longer. But it took me some time to actually learn the software well enough to teach it. It was a big shock to realise that You know, I'd only used about 5% of any of the main NLEs in my editing career. This was tech training and not creative training. Now, over that 18 months, I taught hundreds of people from all around the world in the three- and five-day courses. I taught not just editors, but cinematographers, production managers, self-shooting videographers, directors, producers film lecturers. I mean, the list was endless. But it wasn't just people from the TV and film industry. It was tons of people from completely unrelated jobs. I taught people from finance. I taught estate agents, journalists, car salesmen, managers, and just general hobbyists who were interested in editing. It was a fascinating time and for one really interesting reason. I got asked thousands of different questions about editing from many, many different people. I guess it was a training ground for what would later become Inside the Edit. But what struck me was that I was standing up in front of a class of around, say, 10 to 15 people every week, and that whenever I gave an explanation about the use of a specific part of the interface or button of, say, I don't know, Avid or Final Cut Pro, what would work for one person in understanding it probably wouldn't work for someone else. I had to create multiple examples, sometimes metaphorical or allegorical or story-based, about a circumstance when this particular part of editing would be useful in telling a story visually. I'd explain a button and what it did, And maybe four-fifths of the class got it, but the others wouldn't. And so one of the techniques I developed was to ask the student who didn't get it what job they were in and then try and explain the editing principle or use of the interface through an example of their particular job. Now, it sounded weird, but it really did work. Coming at an editing principle from multiple directions until it finally clicked in the mind of the person I was teaching and coming at it from logic or an example completely separate from filmmaking started to become a new game I would play with myself. I'd also start to weave in theories from completely unrelated fields based on whatever I was reading at the time Politics, history, art, some science subject I was, you know, currently devouring at that particular time. It became fun and it broke the monotony of regurgitating all of this tech training over and over again, week in, week out. And of course, one of the other things I loved about it was that none of the other trainers were doing something like this. It was really, really unique Now, one of these theories was something that I'd stolen from economics. Here's a bit of backstory. When the worldwide economic crash happened in 2007-2008, I remember watching the news as reporters described what was happening to the global economy. And I'll be honest, I had no idea what they were talking about. They were using terms like quantitative easing and fiscal stimulus which were completely alien to me. As this was pressing and completely current, I thought it was probably a good idea to start reading. So I did what I usually do, and I went out and bought a bunch of books on economics and started to educate myself. And it was not like reading. I felt like wading through treacle most of the time. But like anything, whatever we read tends to infiltrate our consciousness and change the way we perceive the world. And I definitely saw this happening with this particular subject. Now, I was never going to teach it. I'd learned enough to understand the news and have a fairly decent conversation with someone about it. And it taught me a hell of a lot about how markets work and central banks and all these kind of things. But what it also did was help me in my editing, believe it or not. There were some really interesting economic principles, but out of all of them, there was one that struck me pretty hard. The law of diminishing returns. Now, I read about this and thought, wow, that is so applicable to certain aspects of editing, especially long form. So what is this law? Well, in classical economics, what it means is that increases in one factor of production generate lower and lower additional returns, assuming that nothing else changes when it comes to the other factors in production. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't understand it either. Let's say you own a restaurant, but you only have one waiter. You'll make a profit, but some of your customers are not getting the service they want because you are understaffed. Now, if you go and hire another waiter, your profits will go up because your customers are getting a better service and they'll probably talk about you and they'll come back for more. But if you keep on hiring more waiters, your profits will start to go down as you've not found that magic balance between the amount of customers and the amount of waiters. Let's think about it in even more simplistic terms. As it's Valentine's Day coming up soon, imagine buying a big bunch of red roses for your wife or husband or girlfriend or boyfriend. Of course, it's going to be a big hit. You'll get all that love and attention from your other half. Very good idea. Now, imagine the next night you come home with another bunch of red roses. It worked before. Let's see if it'll work again. He or she will give you another big hug and thank you, but it won't be as big. The smile won't be as big, the hug won't be as as warm. And so let's imagine again you did that every night of the week. By the weekend, your loved one will be so sick of red roses and you'll probably look like you were crazy. Enough with the roses. (laughs) We did something great. We created a profit for our new restaurant or gave our loved one a romantic gift that let them know how we feel about them. But if we push that one thing too far and repeat it over and over again, we've destroyed it completely. And when I read this, I remember thinking that is so applicable to designing our timelines in the longer genres. When I'm editing, I love to think about the story I'm telling with the director over this hour or two hour duration as a kind of dramatic and emotional roller coaster. At some points it will be fast and at others it will be slower. At some points it might be funny or serious or complex or reflective. You know, it could be anything. Whatever it is, it can't be repetitive as repetitive is boring. Each film we put out into the world is a unique journey full of unique events, unique characters and unique content there will never be another one like it. I don't care if it's a news report or a corporate video, a wedding video, a drama, a reality show, a cooking show, whatever. All of them have individual and unique elements. We are constantly moving and shaping the audience's perception, their enjoyment and their emotional state, which requires one key creative filter in our mind. Variation. We need to sit back and look at that from a macro point of view. Human beings' minds are so wired to love variation and novelty when being stimulated by something like a doc or a film or a reality show or whatever we're cutting. So what does this theory mean for us when we really get down to the micro-elements within a timeline? Well, it means that if we do something cool, something clever, something stylizational, or any number of editorial looks and feels... We shouldn't repeat that over and over just because it's clever or good or cool or whatever it is. I've literally seen thousands of examples throughout my career of a a great looking concept within a sequence that is repeated many times throughout an editor's work. Now the overall feeling at the end of it, of course, is that it loses its magic, its intelligence or its coolness, whichever category it was in. Too much of a good thing activates the law of diminishing returns and the audience and even more importantly directors and producers do not get excited by our work anymore. This is applicable in so many things in creative editing. For example, a specific cutting pattern in a montage or a particular way a score is brought in or cut to or even a facial expression or bit of body language that we allow onto our timeline from a character that we start or end the scene with. Of course, it could be any one of a million creative things. All of these separate stylizations require a bunch of decisions by us as to how we craft and build and design each and every single one, individually and more importantly, across the whole film. Now what's interesting to realise is that high-end editors are constantly looking to move the story and the stylizations forward. They don't want to play that same trick again. They look for the next trick. Talk to anyone at the top of the editing world and that is constantly on their mind. If we repeat ourselves and don't move the story forward, if we fall in love with a specific creative idea we've built, and then go on and create an overabundance of it on our timeline, we don't look creatively mature in the eyes of our clients. And believe me, they notice. Familiarity really does breed contempt in many forms of creativity, as there's nothing more annoying for an audience than to be able to predict our next move or next stylizational look. Imagine a romantic comedy or a horror film that played the same tricks over and over again throughout the film. The former wouldn't be funny and the latter wouldn't be scary. Coolness or intelligence in cutting is about choosing when to use a specific technique to its maximum effect. But also it's about knowing when not to use it. It's extremely powerful to lightly pepper and evenly distribute these intelligent stylizations or cutting patterns or whatever it is we've built over our films, no matter what the length. You know, I love sitting down and identifying the unique flourishes within a timeline. It's one of the truly fun and enjoyable things to design, and it comes usually at the end. After all of the things we've done, we've built, we've created, like designing the sync structure and tempo, or the selection of the shots and the order in which they go, to how we create the space and the tempo between all our elements, or the specific emotional targeting of the musical score throughout, despite all that hard work and hundreds of tiny choices, we can sit on top of it all and put the cherry on the cake with our flourishes. We can look through and place a new layer of creative flourishing that is intelligently designed and specifically targeted at various places throughout our timeline. And most importantly, we can give each one a unique and individual look and feel. What we don't want to do is play the same trick again and again. You know, there's a difference between having a style or a signature look and repetition one is about having the confidence to own a distinctive appearance and the other is just about copying something and applying it again and again and again to different circumstances while hoping for that same emotional effect it had on the audience the first time the effect will never be as powerful the mind just you know it just doesn't work that way and we end up looking like a one trick pony but what's always important to me throughout all of these creative discussions that we have on Once Upon a Timeline is to always bring it back to our clients. We need to think through the psychology of employability in each and every single one of these aspects of creative editing. And here is no different. So what would the perceptional impact be of us being this creatively confident with our timelines What happens in the mind of a client when they see that we created something beautiful and cool or whatever and we don't repeat it again and again and again? We've showed the maturity of variation and not just choosing the easy road of too much of a good thing. Well, quite simply, they think that editor is so confident in their creative abilities that they don't need to repeat something. I wonder what else they've got up their sleeve. I've had many directors talk to me about, you know, a specific look or feel or intelligent touch I created on some previous work that they were looking at while thinking whether they wanted to hire me on their current film. I've always smiled, said something like, yeah, that worked there for that specific reason or words to that effect. I don't embellish my explanation. I don't go overboard about its coolness or whatever it was. I just act in a very minimal way that gives off this aura that this was just one of a thousand tricks I've got up my sleeve. Less is always more, I find, in these situations. And projecting a sense of creative maturity and confidence while being positive and humble is a really deadly combination in getting employed. This is applicable just as much for long-form drama editors as short-form news cutters or an all-in-one videographer. Be very aware of the law of diminishing returns. Buy those visual roses on special occasions only. Save yourself some time and money and the impact on our audience and our clients will be heightened. It'll feel really special and it'll also exploit that evolutional wiring around novelty that every single human has inside their head. All with one big outcome. Our value goes up in the eyes of the potential new client. And that is always where we should be headed in our career. I hope you enjoyed this week's creative discussion, dear friends. It's now time for this week's Ask Paddy. Diane in Jackson, Mississippi, in the USA, sent me an email asking about when to add motion graphics. Great question, Diane. Thank you for sending that in. So, motion graphics and their place in any of our sequences or films. Interesting subject. Let's break down the issues at play. Now, firstly, I would definitely define what the genre or type of project is that we're working in. Is it a news report? Is it a corporate film? Is it a documentary? Is it some online branded content? This matters as there's, you know, there's a certain visual language that each of these audiences are already accustomed to. And playing within those known rules is You know, it's the intelligent thing to do. Ring-fencing anything from potential cutting styles to tonality to motion graphics or any kind of effects work we want to use narrows down our options and closes in on what is acceptable for that particular audience to watch. Certain genres and types of sequences... Uh, also lend themselves to certain types of motion graphics and visual effects as well. And I think this is also a really important consideration. The graphics you see as transitions in between scenes in a reality TV show are very different than the graphics you'd see in a documentary. But once we've got these initial considerations nailed, I would probably think in terms of four big headlines. Firstly, Purpose. What is the purpose of this motion graphic? Why is it there? Why are we going to use a motion graphic here? There's got to be a very good reason for every single thing on our timeline, and motion graphics are no different. Is it there to tell the audience some facts about the character or location we're in? Is it there to stylize the brand or logo of a company in our corporate film? Is it there to give a certain look? to the sequence in a specific way. All these things need to be considered and worked out. Secondly, the logic of the motion graphics. You know, where do they appear? What design and format do they take? Is that logic spread throughout the whole piece? There's nothing worse than seeing graphics that have a disparity in the logic. It makes us look completely amateur. You know, this is one of the main complaints that viewers have about YouTube content, this idea that it looks cheap and automated. Don't forget that with today's software, it's actually pretty easy to use pre-programmed motion graphics, you know, animated titles and interstitials and things like that, which the NLE software companies have put into their programs. Now, that's great, but if everyone's using them, then it devalues the production look of our film. A third consideration I would look at is uniformity. That is, if you are set on using motion graphics to structure and stylize your films, then there has to be a uniformity not only to the design, but also to that logic of when and where they come in. You know, many times, graphics are used as pieces of visual grammar in order to break up a sequence and give it order. Having motion graphics that do not apply a uniform logic or a uniform look over the entire piece is again a warning sign to the audience and to a new client that we are not high end. And finally, I would just add in subtlety. Being subtle and not overusing and overcooking the piece with graphics says a lot about the confidence of the editor and the finished piece. Some of the coolest and classiest motion graphics I've seen are subtle, simple and therefore very slick. I've been in ad agency meetings where they've talked for hours about making the graphics as minimal as possible to create a sense of coolness so they don't fight with the overall message. But at the end of the day, like so many things in editing, it comes down to asking ourselves who our audience is. The motion graphics we'd use for a target audience of 40 to 60 year olds would be very different than the ones we'd use for a teenage audience. Asking ourselves this and all of these other questions will help you narrow down the amount and usage of something like motion graphics. I hope this answers your question, Diane, and thank you very much for sending it in. If you'd like one of your creative questions answered on the show, just drop me an email to podcast at insidetheedit.com and I'll get your question on a future episode. I always love hearing from our community and your thoughts and feedback on the subjects we talk about in Once Upon a Timeline are always really interesting to read. And Luke from London sent me an email recently about the episode we did on transcripts. Hi Paddy, I just wanted to say how much I appreciated your podcast episode on interview transcripts. I shoot and edit for BBC Current Affairs output and it just so happened that when you released that episode, I was in the middle of what you defined as stage two in the transcripts arc, hating them. Ah, <laughs> oh, Mate, we've all been there. Um, he goes on to say, I was so pleased to hear I wasn't alone, but also it helped me temper my hatred and move swiftly to stage three, achieving a balance. I feel though that the transcripts issue is important at the moment because of automated transcription software like Trint. Whilst very useful and time-saving, it means the interview hasn't necessarily been watched back at all. So I'm pushing back as constructively as I can. All the best, Luke. Brilliant, Luke. Thanks so much, my friend. I actually cut a few drama docs in the current affairs department of the BBC myself back in the day. But yeah, you're absolutely right, mate. It is a balancing act between the time we've got to edit, shooting ratio, and this massive concept around our ability to root out and identify emotional and interesting physical behaviour that wouldn't be in the transcripts, but so often really does make a sequence. Thanks for the thoughts, Luke, and best of luck with your future projects. Of course if you want to learn the actual high-end editing techniques used by the pros come and join us at inside the edit we are the industry's only professional level creative editing course we do not teach the software or the buttons or anything tech we leave that to others for us it's the art of editing what actually gets you employed as an editor And we're trusted by thousands of editors around the world and many of the industry's biggest broadcasters and production companies who use our course. Learn at your own pace with over 100 tutorials at insidetheedit.com. But if it's live and interactive training you prefer, then come and join me on this month's Boot Camp. We're going to go incredibly deep into Picture-Cutting Theory in February's live webinar. For a full half-day of live edit training, we're going to study and take apart dozens of creative picture-cutting techniques that will make your timelines absolutely shine. We're going to talk about things like shot flow, building visual grammar, how we design pictorial arcs, what constitutes shot-based pacing and how we manipulate it, and a tonne of other fascinating subjects. Using these techniques elevates you into the highest areas of our craft. The big day is Saturday, the 20th of February at 3 p.m. London time. And for just £99, you get a packed four hours of creative edit training. Go on over to insidetheedit.com right now to book your seat. And of course, if you're already an Inside the Edit member, you can get up to a 50% discount on any bootcamp. I will see you there. And last but not least, if you'd like to come and try our two-week taster of our new master's degree, you can also book it on the site right now. Come and learn with me for a fortnight's glimpse into the world's only professional level editing degree. There is nothing else out there with this amount of creative depth in the film school world. Believe me, we've checked. Well, that is a wrap. For episode 5, season 2, dear friends, as always, a massive shout-out to our friends over at Universal Production Music who supply all of the music to every single thing we do at Inside the Edit. If you like any of these tracks and you think they'd be perfect for something you're cutting right now, as usual, we've listed them all with the links on this episode's page at podcast.insidetheedit.com Sharing is caring, dear friends, and if you got anything out of the show, we'd really appreciate it if you share it with your filmmaking community. Also, if you have a spare 30 seconds of rate and review on Apple Podcasts is also incredibly appreciated. We want to keep this free resource going for as long as possible. There we go. Another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it this week. I will see you very soon, dear friends, on another episode of Once Upon a Timeline. Stay cool, stay safe, and stay cutting.